0: Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, Your Girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the Brooklyn Bunker. Folks, interesting poll numbers have come out this week with regard to President Biden and the fact that a majority of Americans do not think that he is doing a good job that comes on the heels of many Democratic governors deciding that, guess what? COVID's over. And so much in the same way that news broke about Coachella and Stagecoach not using any COVID-19 precautions, basically saying that you're going to come and party with us at Coachella at your own risk, Democratic governors are now doing the very same thing, where they are getting rid of their mask mandates because people are quote unquote tired. I don't know how many times that we have to go through and repeat the same behaviors over and over again, expecting a different result. That is in fact, the definition of insanity. And that's the way that our politicians, whether they be Republican or Democrat have, have been operating. Over the last couple of months, you had the Omicron variant that yes, was it less deadly for those that were vaccinated and boosted? Of course, but did it give us some insight into how this virus has been mutating, which is that each iteration becomes more and more contagious and that the thing that protects us all is wearing masks, right? Social distancing for a, a while now has not been a thing, but masks and particularly those that are not cloth, but are K95 or N95 masks have been keeping people safe. So why is it that now once people again have adapted to these rules, have adapted to this reality, have become accustomed to it, whether it be on public transportation, um, federally regulated public transportation, like airlines, Why we would decide now at a time when the Omicron surge in many parts of the country is now on the decline, that we would turn around and start the same behavior that we had before Let our guards down, and then in a couple of months, when news breaks that there is some other new variant that is incredibly deadly, that is all of the things, then trying to get those same people to go back to doing what it was that they've been doing for the past two years is going to be damn near impossible. But, you know, who cares? Because midterms are in a couple of months, and that's apparently the only thing that politicians care about. I am so aggravated with this entire situation and scenario, just people believing that they can have, what, mind over matter, like the virus gives a fuck? But you know what, I think at this stage uh, in the pandemic, two years in that what we have learned is that no one is going to protect you no one other than yourself is going to have your best interests and your public health and safety in mind everyone else is out to make a dollar or get a vote right and so basically politicians businesses all of them are just gambling right on your well-being so if at this point you are still looking for guidance right? Whether it be from the president, your governor, your school board, or what have you, then you are looking in the wrong place. You're looking outward when you need to be looking inward. I no longer trust any of these outlets. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not trying to spread misinformation, but I'm going to be real because I don't know what is Provoking the decisions that are being made because I don't think that it's public health. I don't think that people are following the science. Do I think that, yeah, there are ways that we can adapt to this new normal? Yes, absolutely. But to pretend that COVID no longer exists, to just throw up your hands, you know, Democratic governors and fucking concert venues and just be like, oh, we're just over it? Watch and wait is all I will say on that. Watch and wait. You know, I I was reading Politico playbook uh, like I do most mornings. And, you know, another alarming piece of news has come to my attention. But, you know, it's the same old, same old story of how terrible Democrats are at messaging. And the question that Politico was posing was, whether or not Democrats were going to come up with a response to the culture wars that Republicans are waging. That's number one. And number two, whether or not Republicans were going to give up the ghost, give up Donald Trump and figure out who else is going to be the leader of this party. I think that those are the wrong questions to be asking. One, I think that if anybody with eyes, ears, right, have been paying attention to what Republicans have been up to over the past five plus years, and if you want to include the Obama years, which is when we got our first inkling into the direction that this party was headed, the fact that Politico is still framing the Republican party as an actual party and not a cult that is hell bent, not on culture wars, but on creating a civil war 2.0 on using their misinformation, using their racism, using their misogyny and weaponizing the pandemic. The fact that still in fucking 2022, now that years after living through the Trump administration, after living through the insurrection that We're still not calling out what Republicans are doing as dangerous to our democracy and still framing a narrative that makes it seem as if there are two equal sides to the preservation of our Republic is bullshit. And it is just bad journalism. How about that? How about it just is bad journalism? To continue to frame it as if we have two cohesive, normal political parties, where one isn't about the entirety of our democracy just being destroyed, blown up with your voter suppression, your racism, your celebration of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all of these things. The fact that you have outlets that are now, by the way, Politico has been bought, right, by uh, the Murdochs. The fact that you are having these outlets still have casual conversation like this is a normal midterm season that we're in is so frustrating and it's just fucking false, right? And then Democrats still twirling their thumbs, right? Twiddling their thumbs as if we don't have a sense of urgency, as if you haven't recognized that Republicans are using the same playbook they've been using for the last four fucking decades, Right? Except now they've utilized technology so that their misinformation and their hate can spread faster. Why is it, right, that following the very eye opening campaign of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia and his win after the Obama coalition successfully had courted the state of Virginia into the blue column, how you don't pay attention to the misgivings there and think that running old candidates is not a fucking thing. It does not excite the base. How about paying attention to your base in the same way that Republicans pay attention to and are scared shitless of their base? How about doing that? How about not just pretending, right, that you can shrug off their attempts at quote unquote parental control and not likening that to the way that white parents were riled up in the 1950s about school integration. How is it that Democrats are still sitting around wondering what to do or thinking that ignoring the claims and the lies that Republicans are throwing out is somehow a winning strategy? It isn't. And you know what I saw this week as well? Uh, I follow uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush, who has been a guest on the show. Follow her on Instagram. And she posted a tweet that she had tweeted earlier in the week, which that saying, basically, that Democrats who are trying to out-Republicans Republican Republicans is not a strategy that is going to win, right? And I'm just like, no, it's not. And how is it that everyone else sees that and yet there's no pivot. There's no stop, pivot, and reflect, right, on how we need to utilize our heavy hitters like Cori Bush, like AOC, like, T- uh, like uh, T- Taleb, like all of these people, like Ilhan, right, these people who are savvy, who are smart, who know how to communicate, who have large followings. How is it that they are not in charge of democratic messaging, right, so that Everyone else can then follow suit. I don't get it. I don't get it. But, you know, I do because it is the old guard, right? The octogenarians who are still in charge of the gavel and who are still have the bully pulpit. But they're not using it in the right way to compete with the tactics of the 21st century. They just are not. And it is evident that Schumer doesn't do it. Pelosi doesn't do it. Biden isn't doing it. No one is painting the Republicans as who they are, a threat to our democracy, a racist, right? Reimagining of America that is going to be worse than the first round of Jim Crow. How is it that the same administration, the same candidate that said, I'm in it for the battle of the soul of this nation does not get what it is that Republicans are doing, which brings me to my guest coming up today. Really excited for you all to hear this conversation with a podcaster, Julie Kohler, who is the co-host of the podcast, White Picket Fence. And White Picket Fence, right, seeks to really uncover, right, the lies that white people have been told, to really unpack it. In their first season, it was uh, busting the myth around white women being progressive and voting Democrat where Julie will tell us that hasn't happened in 40 years. Now, anybody paying attention to politics inside the beltway understands that fact. So then the question is, if that, if those are the data points, then why does the democratic party still try and court Karen as if Karen is trying to go to the dance with you? She ain't, and she hasn't in 40 years, right? The second season of white picket fence was an examination into how families, right, have shifted um, during the time of the global health pandemic, schooling kids at home, the realization that we don't really care about kids in this country outside of the womb. Because if we did, right, if we actually believed the mantra that children are our future, then maybe we wouldn't have had fights over uh, the child tax credit Or, you know, having parental leave as one of the only industrial nations that does not have that guaranteed, right? There are countries that offer a year, six months. In America, six weeks, and we're telling you to stuff your baby in somebody else's care, right? And for you to make just enough money to be able to cover that, but nothing else. And we've accepted that. We've accepted that reality as the norm. And it shouldn't be. And so that is the second season of White Picket Fence. Um, And Julie and I on today's show will get into a conversation about white privilege, about white guilt, about how we hold up a mirror to white America and say, look at yourself. You are both responsible for some good and some devastating violence. How is it that white people cannot see themselves as fully dimensional humans, right? Earlier this week, you know, I was sent, uh, a bunch of clips of the young, uh, black boy in, I believe it was in New Jersey, uh, at a mall who got into an altercation with a white boy. Cops were called and guess who ended up in handcuffs for 30 minutes? right? Guess who was ushered and spoken to in probably a very respectful manner? What did that black boy do to you? And I'm sure that that wasn't the language that was used, right? Why is it that in policing, it is so common for you to have white police officers refer to white boys as son? right? To look at them as a reflection of themselves and to see black people, regardless of the situation that they walk up into as the aggressor, the one that needs to be put down. And you want to tell me that policing doesn't need reform in this country. How many fucking times do we need to see these videos? How many fucking black people need to lose their lives? Right. And I'm just, you know, I'm just tired Right. Like I'm, I'm literally exhausted as I know so many black people are by the bullshit. Like we can't get anywhere because we have to still convince white people of their own moral monster behavior. Right. As James Baldwin said, moral monsters. Fucking gaslighting the people that you are abusing as to tell us that we're just too sensitive and there's no abuse happening. But we run video after video after video, victim after victim after victim of white supremacy, only to tell, only to have them tell us, oh, we're kind of interested and we'll march with you for a good two months. And then we're going to go back to our lives because it's too inconvenient for us to really unpack the hard truths of this nation. I'm just tired of it. And I said yesterday, you know, I, I can't imagine the trauma that that young boy felt. I have no idea what, what the cause of the fight was. I don't really fucking care. All I know is that if cops roll up to a fucking situation and there are a black kid and a white kid, right. That are in, that are interlocked in violence. Then both of them should be sat down. Both of them, right. Should be handled in the same way. Why is that so fucking difficult? Why? Racism right? But white people will look for every other excuse, right? As to tell you why black people should continue to be brutalized, right? They will look for every other reason. Oh, he was big. Oh, we thought he was older. Oh, this, that, and the other. It's bullshit. It's racism. Just look in the mirror. (sighs) You know, it, I got to tell you that with each advance that is made, with each, you know, a couple of steps forward that we make in this country, it just seems that we just boomerang right back to the beginning. And look, I I know, and I talk to people who have been active in the civil rights movement, you know, for their entire lives for the last 60 plus years, right? Because we in America love to believe that Jim Crow was so long ago. Meanwhile, most of us have You know, parents, grandparents who all grew up in that, that are still fucking alive, right? So America's racist history wasn't hundreds of years ago. It was just the other day. And we need to wake up to that reality. Folks, I'm very excited to welcome to Woke F. Daily for the first time, Julie Kohler, who is uh, the host of the podcast White Picket Fence with Wonder Media, um, a podcast that really does an interesting job of looking into the issues that are affecting women. That are affecting our society, um, talking about difficult conversations about race, white privilege, um, and you know, and family, right? And how our family in the latest season, how families were impacted during uh, the last two plus years of living in a, a pandemic. Julie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. It is great to have you. So talk to me about white picket fence. First of all, like I just said before, the name Stellar. I I can I can't believe that that name was not taken. Um like 100. It is it is so fantastic. Talk to us about um the ideas and the themes behind white picket fence.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much. So, you know, I think the name sort of gives a hint at some of the ideologies that we really work to unpack in the podcast while examining a few different topics. So the first season of our podcast really was a deep dive into the politics of white women and what we called the fractured and often frustrating politics and the way that those politics are manifest in our society. I think there is kind of a myth that white women are more progressive often than white men. And while we do see some gender differences in how white women and white men vote, you know, the majority of white women for the last 40 years have voted Republican. And um, we tend to kind of be a little bit surprised by that. And so we really did a deep dive into, you know, the ideologies that shape white women's politics um, and, you know, kind of how that continues in today's society. And in the second season of the podcast, which just aired this past winter, we take a we take a, a look at a lot of the same ideologies that we examined in the first season about race about gender about families about our economy and and white women, white womanhood and we really look at how that has prevented public investment in the kind of family supports the kind of what we now call care infrastructure childcare mm-hmm, paid mm-hmm. family leave the child tax credit benefits that would make Family life so much easier for the vast majority of us. Why has that been so challenging? And obviously, the pandemic brought this to a head. So many of us have been suffering so deeply during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and we really take a critical lens at you know why here we are fifty years later after the uh, you know national childcare was first proposed and passed by bi- bipartisan majorities in Congress. Why we're still coming up short, and why this is still a fight fifty years later.
0: You know, Julie, I want to I want to dig into to your first season, and I and I say that because, um, you know, I am no and, and anybody that has listened to woke AF um, or democracy ish, I go after white women a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I think for the for the main reason that you stated at the at the opening that there is this belief. Um, and I don't know where it came from, so hopefully you can you can provide some insight. Mm-hmm. Um, this belief that white women are more progressive than they are, right? When we have said for decades, those people that are embedded in politics have known that particularly married straight white women vote alongside their husbands, right? I wrote a piece following uh, the 2016 election. Which I think, again, was this startling, eye-opening, you know, moment, not just for, you know, for, for our country, obviously, but for the world, for our country and the fact that, oh my God, we had a white woman on the ballot. You could see a reflection of yourself, right? Yes. Finally, to become Madam President, and, over, and 50, over 50% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Um, An outward celebrated misogynist. So, you know, Julie, what, what came up for you in your first season kind of research and investigation about the why here? And is it, is, and do you feel like we need to unpack the why to kind of let go of the myth so that we can, so that we can move on? That's absolutely
3: right. I think we have to first have a very clear eyed analysis of what is happening if we want to affect change. And so I wanted to put the 2016 election, which was, I think, you know, <laughs> once again, sort of a surprise to many of the kind of, you know, political chattering class, although not to many sort of deeply entrenched in in, in movement politics, um, that yes, a majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. Um despite or perhaps because of his positions that white women and and I wanted to put it in the context of uh, of, you know, white women have long been complicit and not only just complicit with uh, structural racism and white supremacy in this country, but active perpetrators of. Mm-hmm. And I also thought it was important to sort of take this out of the context of we're just having a conversation about those conservative white women And actually look at how this is a story about all of us, about Mm -hmm. all the ways that, you know, white womanhood is structured in such a way that allows us, even those of us who may identify as progressive, to sort of selectively engage on issues of race. And, you know, the the issue of kind of who has the privilege of being awakened, because we did see the 2016 election as kind of this galvanizing moment, right, with the Women's March and all Mm -hmm. of these kind of previously apolitical or not terribly politically active white women suddenly got very engaged and said, oh, my gosh, this is a crisis. I need to fight for my country. But why were you asleep? Why were we asleep? Why have we not been awakened at every point in our history? And what is it going to take to continue that engagement and to really build What the writer Heather McGee talks about in her brilliant book, The Sum of Us, as the solidarity dividend, like what is it going to take in this country for us to all be invested in the idea that if we work across racial lines to build something, to build a public good, that we will all do better. And so that is what I really wanted to examine, kind of the, the historical underpinnings of the ways that even in progressive movements, so we take a critical look at suffrage yeah. and second wave feminism and the way that our, you know, white feminist ancestors often turned their back on our black feminist sisters mm-hmm. once they secured critical rights for themselves. And what is it really going to take? to build a different, intersectional, sustainable, progressive feminist movement that can really deliver both racial
0: and gender justice in this country. Julie, why do you think that, like, what, why do you think that white women prefer to stay in slumber? What? What is it, and it, is it just the if I don't pay attention, if I don't tap in, then my rights, as you said, will continue to be secured. If I make too much noise, right? Mm -hmm. If I put too much skin in the game, then I'm risking my own liberty and how, and I don't want to risk my own liberty in order to secure someone over there. Yeah. What, what is it?
3: Well, I think in one, on one level, we have been thoroughly indoctrinated in this country with the myth of the zero-sum game, yeah. that I can only have what's mine if it comes at the expense of someone else, and someone else gaining some degree of you know, whatever it is, wealth, comfort, security, dignity, will come at my expense. And so I think we really need to be pushing back against that. And, and I think what is one of the really difficult things about trying to create this investment in the solidarity dividend writ large is that we are trying to create a society that we have never had. Yes. So we have, yes. you know, we have never seen what it would look like on the other side, what, a, what an anti-racist society the benefits it would deliver for all. And so it really sort of takes this leap of faith, right, that mm-hmm. I have to believe that it will be beneficial to me, my children, my family, my community, even though I don't I haven't experienced it. I don't know what that looks like. And we're, you know, in a media environment and a political environment that is constantly throwing racist fear mongering, you know, our way and constantly, you know, reinforcing this. If this happens, you're going to, you know, it's going to be at your expense. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's just some powerful work that we have to do to overcome. You know, it's
0: what's, what's so interesting, um, that you're saying is that I started my career thinking that I was going to be in the women's movement. Mm -hmm. It was my desire when I went to college and, you know, I majored in, in political science, but my goal, my, you know, what my passion was at that time was to be a part of the women's movement. So I interned at the national organization for women, Mm -hmm. which later became my first job out of college. And it would also be the first job that I quit because I had never felt so invisibilized as a Black woman, as a queer woman, um, my experience as an intern versus the actual like infrastructure of the organization, things that I had heard right being said about women of color, this idea that somehow everyone else needs to leave every other part of themselves behind in pursuit of the quote-unquote greater good, which yeah. harkens back to you know, suffragist time. Oh, you know, why are you giving rights to these black men before you are your own wives? And then, you know, we're going to turn them into our enemy in the pursuit of our greater good. Black women want to work in coalition. Indigenous women want to work in coalition because community understanding is the fundamentals of the societies that we come from. Right? Right. But it isn't the same and so I, I I wonder too how much is it our lie that we tell ourselves around Americans white Americans individualism that doesn't then allow allow white women to be a part of the greater collective, which is how the rest of us from marginalized and underrepresented communities have always had to navigate through life through those safety nets of family, um, whether you biological or not, because of the way in which we've been treated in society. So you have to build your own safety net. So how much is it in the way that we have been socialized, right? That doesn't allow for white women to see themselves as part of the larger community of women and, and people.
3: Yeah, I think that is, I think that those kind of individualistic mindsets are so pervasive and have indeed infused, you know, all of these movements for social justice, including the women's movement. So yes, I think that's a big piece. And I think the other piece is just the blinders that privilege puts on one and this kind of ability to opt out of seeing race when it's convenient not to do so. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I I really tried to ground the first season of the podcast in some of my own sort of reflections on the narrative I've told about myself, because I think a lot of this is like unpacking the, the stories we yeah. tell about ourselves and the way we view ourselves. And, you know, I grew up in this progressive, largely white, liberal community suburban community in Minnesota at a time when there was like you know kind of it was a a state of sort of public investment we believed in the common good we believed in all these kind of public benefits and and believing this kind of myth about this progressive utopia not utopian but you know like kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very good meaning you know good community and then really having that i mean shattered you know Obviously, I questioned that, you know, had a more political, politically nuanced understanding of that as I aged. But particularly when Minneapolis has become ground zero for violent policing and these horrific murders of black men at the hands of police officers, you know, and, and, and some of the, the largest race, racial discrepancies on almost any measure of well-being. And sort of how this progressive myth kind of um, prevented clear sightedness about the inequity that was, you know, hiding in plain sight my Mm -hmm. whole life. And so I think that it really is incumbent upon all of us to do that critical analysis of the stories we tell about ourselves and sort of this belief we want to have in our own goodness and really look at the ways that... By not attending to race or selectively attending to race, we are maintaining, we are actively perpetrating and
0: maintaining a deeply racist status quo. And, you know, your own inequity, right? Yes. Because, yes. because the, the, the reality is, you know, that, we, <laughs> that none of us are free until we're all free. Right. Yes. And it is, it is, the, it is that sentiment and that reality that unless we're going to, and as I say on woke AF often, unless you're going to do the hard work of interrogating your own feelings. And I will go so far as to say, interrogating your own history, because yes. there is this desire. I think that, you know, the original big lie wasn't one about election fraud. It was one about white American exceptionalism yes. and the belief that, you know, The desire right now is to erase the, our violent origin story in this country to preserve the big lie that white people came here to, you know, spread goodwill and do all the right things in America. And you're just like, oh, but if you actually listen to the stories of those that were oppressed, then you don't look like this great savior Right? The, career, right? the home of the brave, you don't look like the myths that you've been putting up. The myths don't hold up over that, time yeah. once other people have the microphone in their own hands and are able to narrate their own stories outside of what they've been fed.
3: That's exactly right. And I think, you know, even though I would have been someone, I think probably my whole life would have been raised with a political awareness about, you know, the fact that American exceptionalism was somewhat of a myth. I think I still believed, and I talk about this in the first season of the podcast, in this myth of sort of our own, my own specialness as kind of mm. a enlightened, progressive white person. And you have to also combat that, right? Yeah. That, that is also a myth and that there is nothing special about ourselves and our communities and, you know, and that we are all have a responsibility to be doing more, better, different. Yes. But that, and and I, I really believe that you know this the way that this anti-supposed critical race theory issue has mm-hmm. taken off is is at its core a protection of that belief in our own mm-hmm. goodness, right? And a and a very visceral desire to not engage in anything that could challenge that. Like, this is a story of a, you know, this is a, a, a fight over the narratives we tell ourselves and yep. what gets codified as truth. Mm-hmm. And if we don't address that and change that, like, that, and, and the possibility that that could change is so deeply threatening to
0: folks. So how do you feel, Julie? How do we go about the collective unpacking? How do we go about You know, what I I often say, putting the mirror to the face of white America and saying that, you know, as James Baldwin said so many, many years ago, you can't change things that you don't face. And the desire right now, right, through the pushback with critical race theory, which I continue to remind people, is not taught in K through 12 schools. It is taught in law school as an elective and in some law schools, not all, right? That, If the, the, the force behind the pushback is to hold on to this make-believe of white American exceptionalism, then how do we go about forcing people to look in the mirror, forcing white people to look in the mirror and say, like, you have the ability to be both monster, right? And, and, and innovator. Right. Yep. Like you have, like, you are also a complex human, right. That isn't just about gl- being Glenda the good witch, right? Yep. Like there is all of these other levels. So how do you think that we continue down this road when now there's just so much pushback, there are actual laws and policies going on the book to make sure that white pe- as, as Ron DeSantis said, don't feel uncomfortable. So that they don't feel any discomfort, can go along just for the get along.
3: Yeah. No, I think, I mean, we should call all these laws like the codifying of white fragility laws, right? Mm. I mean, like that's what they are, right? Like the protection of white fragility to make sure that that is not challenged. And, you know, I think it taps into sort of the way, the unique ways that white women's racism has always been manifest in this country. Um, there's a wonderful book called Mothers of Mass Resistance by Elizabeth um, Gillespie McRae. And she was a guest of mine on the first season of the podcast where she talks about how these battles over education have long been sort of where it's been socially sanctioned for white women to kind of activate their racism, right? Like from the the anti-integration, anti-school busing campaigns of the 1960s and 70s, to now what we see around, you know, both the sort of um, anti-public education in terms of like the uproar over, you know, school closures and mask wearing and public health measures to the anti-so-called critical race theory debates. But I mean, it really is this way of protecting my comfort as a white person in the masked in this, I am work i am giving myself to my child's best interests right this mm. this you know, white womanhood has been constructed and that i am a you know this this my, my you know again my goodness my my caretaking my my mothering so what is it going to take to change it i mean one it's why i wanted to like you know have some of these public conversations yeah that both examine sort of the the big picture and the personal and yeah hopefully start to prompt more people to have these conversations. But then, you know, kind of moving into the second season of the podcast, where we look at the care, caregiving crisis in this Mm -hmm. country. I also think it's going to take policies that put us, that provide benefits to us and build that solidarity dividend that, that show us concretely that there are better ways of orienting society in ways that we all benefit. And I think if we could get some of these you know if we can change some of our policies i also think that helps us change our narratives so i don't think that like they're inter- they're interconnected right i think narrative-, narrative and the stories we tell need to can lead to different kind of policies and different kind of policies can also lead to different narratives i think it's a really iterative process but i do think that if we can have some investment, some greater investment in the common good that allows us to build bridges and to see one another's dignity and to sh- really show kind of the, the common humanity that we need to be uh, all invested in, 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 in building and, and, and forging.
0: Julie, what is coming up next uh, with a white picket fence for, for season three? What will folks be looking forward to?
3: yeah well, we're early in our in our thinking right now, but I really would like to sort of um knit together our first two seasons because I think the issues that we unpacked in both of those are coming to a head politically. You know, I've really been interested in the in the first two seasons in these moments of political disruption, Donald Trump's election. The Black Lives Matter movement, and particularly the mass demonstrations that arose in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and what we saw as sort of a, a, at least a, a momentary, um, building of interracial solidarity in the wake of that, and then this public health crisis that caused yeah. you know massive shared pain, particularly for. Parents, and again, particularly for mothers um, who were affected most dramatically by lack of childcare and lack of public uh, accessible schools. And all of these, I think, disruptions could have been a moment of tremendous political transformation where we really mm-hmm. built those solidarity dividends. And what we've seen in the wake of all of these is a tremendous rise of racist backlash. And so I think we're at this very precarious moment and I just, so I'd really like to look at why, again, why are we seeing this racist backlash in this moment? Who's behind it? How are they messaging this? And what do we need to do to do something differently? Like we have a choice in how we engage at this moment and I'd like to offer people a different path forward.
0: I love that, Julian. I can't wait. I can't wait for, I can't wait for, (laughs) uh, for the third season. And, you know, I I will say that I don't often, you know, have an opportunity to really delve into the psychology, uh, of white women, which is what you have done, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and really, you know, create this historical arc that then brings us to this current space and place, right? Um because the questions that I think that a lot of us have is why are we here, right? And I would argue because we don't have the cur- we don't have the courage, right, to look in the mirror. We don't have the courage to say that America isn't exceptional, right? That the the belief of that exceptionalism has is what has left us open for the vulnerability of our empire to collapse, right? Without you know, without understanding who we are and how we got here, how do you chart a path forward? And that's, you know, that's just the reality. And so um, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I I hope that you'll come back to Woke AF um, sooner rather than later.
3: I would love that. It's been wonderful to talk to you.
0: Appreciate you. Folks, the podcast is White Picket Fence. Um, Make sure to check out the first two seasons so that you will be prepared For season three. Now, folks, for our transition into our woke moment of wellness. And I wanna say, I really appreciate um, folks dropping notes and telling me that you are walking, telling me that you're caring for your plants, telling me that you are really being intentional about your wellness. And like I said at the top when talking about COVID, If we are not taking responsibility for our own health and well-being, we cannot assume that other people are going to take responsibility. And at a time when our health and our public safety are all just up in the air, it is important. It is more important than ever. That we take care, that we make those doctor's appointments, that we work out, that we eat well, that we stay hydrated, that we stay grounded and connected. Because as I continue to say, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. So, you know, here's something that I want to share. A lot of people tell me that, you know, they've tried meditation and, you know, it doesn't work for them or they fall asleep or... Um, you know, they, they just, they don't feel whatever they think is going to be that dreamy state of, um, of meditation and what I want to offer. And again, I use one app, uh, right now, but I know again, there are many and they are free, but insight timer, not only do they have guided meditations, meaning that you can just listen to people, um, talking and guiding you through meditation, but they also have really beautiful music. And so, even if, you know, quote unquote meditation, sitting and listening or breathing on your own for a certain time frame doesn't work for you, I would encourage you to check out just the beats and the melodies and the music that are on these different apps, whether it be three minutes, 10, or 20, or more. Um, as a way to help us level out our cortisol levels and just you know get lost in the music, you can do that while walking, washing the dishes, you know, laying down right before you go to sleep. But if meditation, if listening to a guided meditation and doing that kind of breath work, um, isn't your cup of tea, then I encourage you to listen to some music and during that time, just doing your own breathing in counts of four, right? So you do you breathe in holding for 4 seconds and then exhaling out through your mouth. Try to do 3 rounds of that. Where you're counting in your head to 4 as you're inhaling, you hold for 4 and then release for 4. Try 3 rounds of that. Um try it today. Try it right after Uh, the podcast. See if you find that your shoulders relax, right? That your body loosens up and that you can actually feel your breath change. So, Try and do those breathing exercises while you're just listening to that serene, you know, music, whether it is, um, are wonderful violinist, piano, harps, like all of these things. It doesn't take a lot of time, but again, it's that intentional time where we're looking to connect and align with our body, with our breath, with our emotions, and really using right? That time for ourselves and being intentional about it. So give that a whirl and let me know in the comment section, what you think and how you're reacting to it. Folks coming up next is my conversation with Julie Kohler from White Picket Fence. Make sure to check out her podcast as well. Um, I think you will enjoy it. That is it for me today, folks, here on Woke AF Daily. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now.
0: You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
3: your podcasts.